Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we have a treat, Virginia Jaramillo. The Menil Collection is presenting Virginia Jaramillo, The Curvilinear Paintings, 1969-74, to through July 3rd, 2021. Somehow, it is the first solo museum exhibition of Jaramillo's 60-year career. Curated by Michelle White, the show features a series of paintings that Jaramillo made featuring the joining of line to color against mostly monochromatic backgrounds. The exhibition also serves as a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Deluxe Show, one of the first racially integrated exhibitions in the United States. It was presented in Houston in 1971. Art historian Darby English's book, 1971, A Year in the Life of Color, considered the exhibition. English discussed it here on the Man Podcast in 2017. We'll have a link on this show page on manpodcast.com. Jaramillo is a California-born painter whose abstractions have long explored space, line, geography, and the physical remnants of civilizations. In the last decade alone, she's been included in major scholarly exhibitions, such as curator and art historian Kelly Jones's Now Dig This, Art in Black Los Angeles, 1960-80, and Witness, Art and Civil Rights in the 60s, which Jones curated with Teresa A. Carbone. Jaramillo was also included in Mark Godfrey and Zoe Whitley's Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power. Jaramillo's paintings are in the collections of museums such as the Brooklyn Museum, the Kemper in Kansas City, the Metropolitan in New York, the Norton Simon in Pasadena, and the Virginia MFA in Richmond. If you have a chance, we'd really appreciate it if you would give the program a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We've been getting five-star ratings, but we haven't had a five-star review in two months. Please help us out. Virginia Jaramillo for the full hour after the break. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view through February 7th, 2021 at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins' Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins' literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents... Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. And we're back. Virginia Jaramillo, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I would like to begin with the earliest thing I have read about you, 
which is that when you grew up in Los Angeles in the 1950s and that when you were still in high school, you would join some fellow students to visit Charles and Ray Eames's studio in each week, I think. So first of all, how the heck did that happen? And secondly, did it have any impact on on your becoming an artist? Certain students were chosen out of what uh, the school manual arts called uh, double X classes. And I think this was because the artists or the students in those classes were advanced. We had nude models and the whole thing, which was unheard of at that time, especially in high school. We were invited by my instructor, Mr. Robert Neese, who I believe knew Charles Eames. He would have had to. Every Saturday or every other Saturday, it was very loose, and it wasn't even part of the curriculum. But he said all those who would like to because he, uh, visit Charles or and Ray Eames' studio on Washington could meet at the high school around 10 o'clock in the morning. And sometimes two students would show up, sometimes five, sometimes one, which was myself. We would look at films and we would hear him speak, but not, you know, it wasn't like he was there trying to instruct us. It was we were being introduced to certain concepts which we were not aware of in terms of design and also architecture was really good. And it did influence me uh, with certain ways of looking at, at the world and looking at, at art and looking at what I was actually sitting on and writing on and just architecture in general. And it's informed my life even to, to this day. When I think of the Eameses, I think of experimentation with new materials and new ways of applying color or paint or whatever, to, to surfaces, to, to different kinds of surfaces. And there are some of those things in your work that I can imagine having started there. Yeah, it was like his films. We, <laughs> I say I was brainwashed by his films because you know, we were introduced to them constantly so that the notion of what they were trying to say to young kids, you know, especially at that time, really, really sank in like the power of 10 in blacktop for me was phenomenal there there are paintings in your oeuvre that like like divide from 1964 or an untitled painting from 1960 that kind of has a looking down from above feel to it a kind of landscape from high above and so I, I, when I read about your visits to the Eames studio, and especially when you just mentioned Powers of Ten, I, you know, I, I guess I wonder if, if you think or thought of those paintings as looking down from above the way Powers of Ten progresses. Well, you know, it's like when something becomes a part of you, you don't even think about it anymore. It's just there, and it informs what you do and how you see what you do, and also how you compose your paintings, if you compose them at all, is just a part of me now. That's all I can say. And it came at a, at a very early age. Well, not early. I was in my late teens. But it came at a time when I really needed that information. Yeah, high school, high school works. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's a very important time. People, do, I mean, young students really don't realize that. But those... Those years really inform the rest of your life. You know, there are certain people that never really 
they they seem to peak in high school, and they're always living in the past. In those times, it's not about that. It's about moving forward. Very early in your career, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, you had work included in the annual exhibitions that then took place at the Los Angeles County Museum. What do you remember as being the focus? In fact, that 1960 painting I mentioned a moment ago, we'll have have an image on manpodcast.com, was one of those paintings. What do you remember being the motivating focus in your painting at at that time? Well, I think it started before. You know, I would look through uh, magazines, art magazines, and and the newspaper, and I'd see these paintings by male artists. A little voice inside of me would always say, you're as good as that. You're that good. And so sometimes I would voice it aloud, I'm as good as this. I can I can do this better, you know, or just as good. And so that motivated me to, I was painting on student canvas, which, you know, if you stretch too hard, really tears, because that was the only thing I could afford at that time. I was just a kid. And so I started painting this painting that I had done from a little sketch. And I still have the sketch. It's only like three inches by four inches, a little sketch. And I said, I can do this on a larger piece of canvas. So I started composing this little drawing. And and it was the line drawing, actually. <laughs> It wasn't a drawing drawing. It was kind of like an abstract line drawing. And I started filling in the colors. And then I heard that the, that the date for, well, the deadline date to submit work to this juried exhibition that the museum was holding was such and such a time. And so I had my father drive me there and I, you know, just, you know, took the painting in and that was it. I, I didn't hear for a while about it, but they sent me a letter that your painting has been accepted. But I signed my painting, V. Jaramillo, because I knew at that time, I don't know, I instinctively knew that if I had put Virginia Jaramillo, I don't think my work would have even been looked at. But since I put V. Jaramillo, I think they thought I was a man. Do you remember what painting that was? Yes. Yes, I do. Was it Divide? Was it the untitled painting from 1960? Was it a different Oh, no. That painting is not even uh, photographed or anything like this, but it was called Comic Conversation. Do you still have it? No, it was lost. There are three paintings from this kind of early 60s periods of yours that I have seen. The, the untitled 1960 painting in Divide and a painting from 1965 called Structure 9, March 5th. And they seem informed by things like earth art and minimalism, but only in kind of the narrow formal sense. They, you know, we think of, I think of minimalism as being really industrial, and each of these three paintings feels organic. Was anything I just mentioned something that you remember interesting you in those works? Well, for one thing, these are what I call the black paintings because they're basically a black background or dark raw umber, burnt umber background mixed with black, like an earth pigment shape within them. When I was a kid, I used to go to my grandparents. I don't know. Well, in California, they call it a ranch, but it was like, you know, they had a turkey ranch and it was for the summers and they lived in Imperial Valley. 
and the earth there was cracked, you know, because of lack of water, you know, the, and I would ride this rickety bike that squeaked, but that was the only thing that I had to occupy myself. So I would ride in these fields with the earth was totally cracked. And I always wondered, how could that earth be cracked? Could I pick up that earth and take it home with me? That's what I remember as a kid. And so I think that really stayed with me. And when I did those black paintings, I was trying to get to that, some kind of textural quality of earth. So the surfaces of those paintings are not like it's I, I, my, my sense is it's not just paint on the surface there. Were you mixing any outside matter into your in, into those paints or using any outside matter on the surface of the canvas? No, it was all uh, like uh, gesso that I had mixed up myself because uh, gesso used to come in powdered form or you can still buy gesso in powdered form. And I would mix it up myself and mix it with rabbit skins, glue, and all kinds of little things. But they were all uh, artist materials. I didn't throw in any earth or anything like that. Were you particularly interested in the surfaces of those paintings and how they looked or visually felt? Yes. Only the aspect of the textured portion of the painting. It had to look a certain way. There was a something I was trying to achieve, and I think it was from my childhood experiences, I was trying to develop cracks in and on the surface, but still being stable enough to adhere to the surface. That was difficult, because usually when something is highly textured, especially in those days, it was uh, there was a possibility of it like crumbling off or what have you, or being delicate in handling and the possibility of it just completely sliding off the surface. From these early works on, really, for, for, for several decades, there is in your painting a suggestion of immense space, that whatever you're doing on the surface of a painting is happening across an area far more ner- enormous than either within your rectangle or that your rectangle is referring to, you know, kind of geologic space. When and why did that sense of space come to interest you? I've always been interested in that concept and of vastness. I don't know, maybe it's growing up in California and seeing just fields going forever. Certain pieces of music connote space to me. At a very early age, I started reading science fiction and things like that, and that was about space. But I'm, we're, we're speaking about more, uh, you know, conscious space, you know, in art. What I became interested in at one point was uh, Japanese prints. And at first, I really didn't care for them because I really didn't understand what the aesthetic was behind the flatness of the surface of the Japanese print. And then it's strange, after uh, I came back from Paris, I had a whole different outlook about space because it wasn't only the space within the context of that piece of paper or the painting. It was about space in general. And there's a Japanese aesthetic, which they call Ma, M-A, and it's about the negative space between positive space. 
and they're very concerned with that negative space. The negative space has to become as important as the positive space. It's just not arbitrarily, oh, let's put something here and something there. No, that negative space has to speak. And that's when I really started focusing in on the expanse of what I was doing wasn't just limited to the canvas. It could go on because it was speaking about space and the negative space between the lines. This is, I'm, I'm speaking now not of the paintings which have, you know, the curvilinear and then maybe color in them because I began eliminating, continuously eliminating, eliminating, eliminating because I wanted to get to that negative space, which was really positive space. If you put a line in there, the line, I wanted the line to be just as if someone threw a piece of thread on the canvas. How important could that be to the whole expanse of the painting? So I had to make that important with a minimal amount of subject matter, you might say. You mentioned science fiction, and I can't, I can't help but seize on that. Was science fiction television or film or books important? Oh, yeah. How? Oh, I don't know. I, I really don't know what drew me to that. But as a, at, at a young age, 11 and a half or 12, I was reading science fiction. The pulp science fiction mags that would come out uh, like, you know, once a month or something like that for minimal cost, 45 cents, 25 cents or something like this. I would just run to thrifty drugstore. <laughs> Oh my God! I remember thrifty drugstore. Yeah, and because they had a newsstand, you know, like every store has. I would look for the next issue and just read it and devour it. And that just set my mind. Just I would just read a a sentence or a paragraph, and I'd just think about it for like it seemed hours. Just what did they really mean? Wow! And the and the illustrations, oh, were so great. I could just look at them forever. And I really tried to save. Uh, save all of my copies, as many as I could. I would end up putting scotch tape over the surface, you know, to hold the, the cover together. I remember that. And then during the Watts riot, this little house in the back of this rental that we had burned to the ground and all my little books were in there. So that was a loss. Oh my gosh. Well, all, archivists are just, archivists who are listening to the show are now crossing out the notes they just wrote to themselves. <laughs> And, and and listeners will have will please excuse my swooning over things like thrifty drugstores. You and I are both old Californians, and as we were talking before taping, our families both go way back into California's history. So we've been doing some nerding out between <laughs> between questions here. So I was asking a moment ago about surface of your paintings, and one. One reason is because it seems to me the surface of those 60s paintings is so different from where you arrive in the 70s and the curvilinear paintings that are now on view at the Manil. Did you consciously make a shift in how you constructed painting surfaces because you wanted to do something different? Were there just different paints available as new paints come online what what affected a change in the in the surface of the paintings as we get into the curvilinears well the change in the paintings came about after my trip to paris 
And we, my husband and I stayed there for a year, not just in Paris, but we traveled throughout. And that really changed my outlook. Everyone was always telling us, if you're really a painter, you have to go to Paris. And we said, what? <laughs> they said, it's the light. You have to see Paris. It's the light. And so we said, the light. Okay, we have to go, you know. <laughs> Okay, you know, like oh, we have to go to Paris to see the light, because they they would tell us everything changes, and it did, it did change. It changed the way I looked at things, and it kind of zipped open my brain. It just was such a a revelation to see how people actually lived with art, and art was an everyday part of their lives. And you can walk down the street and you're walking down history. And that taught me a lot. So it changed my way of thinking. Did something about that light and that experience make it into the surface of the curvilineers? Definitely. Definitely. That along with the with the Eames credo of uh, forms, form follows function and the whole thing, I started, as I said, eliminating color, just trying to get to the ma of the painting. It was just a self-directed endeavor. No one told me I had to do this. It was something I felt I had to do for myself. So to stand in front of one of the curvilineers that are now on view at the Manil is to have an extraordinary volume of color, of a single color, on the wall surrounding the viewer they are enveloping, if you will. I, I'm not a painter, but it has always seemed to me that making a painting on which 99.3% of the surface is one color seems terrifying and daunting and challenging. How did you come to allowing or wanting one, co one color to dominate most of those paintings? It had to come about. I didn't really have control over the direction that the work was taking me. I was just following an impulse. And as I said, it was an act of elimination. What was not important in the painting? And I was really hard on myself. What does not speak to the message I want to convey? How can I make that simple line as important as an entire composition with different colors and all this happening, landscape, you know, what have you. How can I make that line that important? And that's where this whole endeavor has led me or led me at the time. Why did eliminating elements from what would become the paintings, why did that become important? Or what do you think made that important? Because I realized that the color the color field was not negative space, but it was a space filled with life and a space filled with possibilities. So that color, which occupied the entire field except for whatever line I happened to put in there, had to speak to the line itself. That's I know that's getting kind of metaphorical, but it's true. It makes sense when, I mean, you know, as you say that, I'm looking at two of the paintings on two screens here and clicks into place. I mean, I, I, I get it. So in the curvilineers, does your color, whether it's the flat color 
that covers 99% of the painting or the color that makes up the curving lines continue around the stretcher bars? Uh, yes, it does. So why does it do that? And how did you come to that? Well, since they're curvilinears, the line couldn't just stop at the surface because, as I've said before, it was the expanse of space. So I wanted the line to just continue as far as I could take it, as far as I was concerned. It was not just the mere surface of the painting, but I wanted it to go around to envelop the painting. And that's where the concept of taking the line all the way around as far as I could go and still being and still looking at the line from an angle and it continues straight as if there is no curve, as if there is no corner. And that was hard to achieve sometimes. Were you were you painting on stretcher bars or were you painting on flat canvas and then stretching stretcher bars all the time? How did your colleagues and peers react to that in you know, in 1972 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny question. Sometimes they would say, oh, that's cosmic. <laughs> 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 or or they would put a thumbs up, you know. <laughs> but there was not too much comment about my work because I really wasn't part. I mean, you know, we went to all the openings and everything like this. and But I really, you know, when there was an opening, Dan would say, aren't you coming to the opening? And I said, no, I'd rather stay here and work because then I knew it would be quiet, <laughs> which was great. And I cherish, cherish those moments because, you know, having two kids and, you know, just the whole thing of New York City. Once everyone went to bed, that's when I would go in the studio and just be so happy just to have peace and quiet to do my work. So and sometimes Dan would take the kids with him. I mean, the boys knew everyone we knew in terms of artists. So they were like all part of the family. You know, it, when I think of, say, color field painters from the late 60s and early 70s, you know, they were quite often working on canvases that weren't on stretchers. And so their their stuff, if you will, you know, whatever was going on in their paintings would continue around their stretcher bars because the stretcher bars came along after the fact. And I'm sure there are other examples of painters who worked in the more traditional way as, as, as you were, only then adding paint around the stretchers. But I can't immediately think of any on the spot. So I would have, I would have thought it was something that your painter friends would have noticed right away, especially in the context of what was going on in the rest of the painting world. Yes, well, see, since I did it on the on the stretcher, and they just, for the most part, just kind of, you know, painted on the floor. And if the painting went around the, the the sides of the canvas, well, that's what it was. Sometimes it didn't, and sometimes they had to just kind of fill in the colors around there, and it, because to frame a painting really wasn't the thing that was done at that time, it was basically looking at the painting itself, not at the frame. And so I was painting rather, what you might say, old school style, still painting on the stretcher. But I didn't care about that because uh, there was something I wanted to do with the space itself. To me, that was solving a, a compositional problem. The show that's now at the Manil is there because these are great paintings, but it's also a 50th anniversary celebration of the deluxe show about which Darby English wrote his book, 1971. 
So, of course, the 50th anniversary starts in two months and two days. How did you come to be in the show? Well, being the only woman, which at that time, you know, when the show went up, no one really thought too much of the show. I mean, it was a great show, and there were a lot of internationally known artists, and uh, it was going to be the first racially mixed exhibition on a major level. I'm not sure how it was uh, Ken Nolan and uh, Clement Greenberg and Peter Bradley who who curated the show. And it was uh, Peter Bradley's concept, as far as I, I know, to put together a show and put together a show in, I think it's the Fifth Ward. Well, it was in the ghetto. If I'm mis- if I'm not mistaken, about the Fifth Ward, and nothing had ever been done like that, especially to put an exhibition with all these famous, world-known artists in the ghetto. So they had to find a venue for it, and it was decided that the Deluxe Show, which was a uh, defunct theater at that time, the Deluxe Theater, excuse me, would be a perfect venue because it had the space. So what they did, they threw a grant from the from the Manil, which, you know, sponsored this whole concept, which is really fantastic. They cleaned it out, painted it, and just did everything they could. It looked like a museum when they finished. It was really beautiful. And I got to be in there because this is the 50th anniversary coming up of the Manil, you know, sponsoring the deluxe show and uh, being the only woman, they thought it really would be nice to honor that aspect of it. The show got lots of attention. And one of my favorite quotes of contemporary art history (laughs) came out of the show. Frank Bowling said that the, (laughs) Frank Bowling said that the curving lines in your paintings, quote, have no apparent purpose other than dynamite. Which is, I mean, honestly, as good as it as good as it gets. <laughs> How did the curves come about? Was it a process of developing drawings freehand and migrating them to canvas? Were you using tape? How did those curves, and there are several, of course, on most of the paintings, come about? It's it came about like during four stages. First, it comes about through a drawing and. Then I'm, you know, of course, I'm going to select a drawing that I feel could work on a larger scale. Say the drawing pad is 8 by 10, and the the line is drawn on that pad. When I decide to transpose this onto canvas, the scale has to be identical to the 8 by 10. No matter how much I blow it up, it has to remain in scale. So... Uh, you know, that's why a lot of my canvases are large, because that, that was, okay, if I blew it up, it had to remain in scale, because then the line wouldn't be as meaningful. If I really liked the line that I had drawn on, on a piece of paper, it had to remain that scale for it to be as meaningful as I thought it was, or would be. And so parchment paper was adhered to the canvas, taped onto the canvas, and I would draw the line on the parchment paper. And I could make all my mistakes and the curve and what have you on the parchment paper. Once I had it the way I felt was the way it appeared on the pad, 
then I transposed that onto the canvas. And then that was a whole other stage getting it done right. How did you decide what the relationship between the color of the curves and the color uh, or colors of the ground would be? Well, again, the aesthetic of Ma, that was really important to me. That color had to relate. The background color, which took up 99% of the canvas, really, really had to inform the line. And the line had to inform the color. And sometimes it was the, the, the definition between the background and the line was very, very slight. I don't know if I could really explain that, but the, both colors were equally important. However, the background color, which was 99% of the surface, took days to mix. Because when I have seen these paintings, not on my computer screen, but in, in person, I, I guess that's the kind of thing we have to say in 2020 when almost none of us have seen paintings in nine months <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> but, but, but but so working from my memory of having seen the paintings in person, I have always thought that the colors of the curvilinear lines could only have been those colors. You know, it's not like a pinkish line could have been yellow instead and the painting would have worked. Yeah, it was a, it was a thought process in motion there. I would study the the painting for days, sometimes weeks, and then I would start mixing the color. And that color only came about by just looking at the painting a way that maybe artists don't speak anymore. The painting had to talk to me, had to inform me as to what it needed in order to come alive. So you were you were mixing colors, you weren't using acrylics out of the tube. Oh, I was mixing color. No, no. Sometimes, like, there's a purple painting in the Manil, which is a very large painting. It's not just a purple. There's red, there's blue, there's green. But it's the right amount of every color to stay true to the purple. That was the hard part. Like, I wanted it to appear to be a purple or ultramarine. But within that context, there were maybe five colors mixed in there. But yet it still had to appear as the purple. My guest is Virginia Jaramillo. We'll be right back after a break. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, thousands of people around the globe have taken on challenges from Getty and other museums to recreate famous works of art at home. Astonishing in their creativity, wit, and ingenuity, these photographs remind us of the power of art to unite us and bring joy during troubled times. The new book, Off the Walls, Inspired Recreations of Iconic Artworks, celebrates these imaginative recreations, bringing highlights from the Getty Museum Challenge together in one whimsical, irresistible volume. Getty Publications will donate all profits from the sale of this book to the charity Artist Relief. Get your copy at shop.getty. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the arts press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.com. 
now back to my conversation with Virginia Jaramillo. So I have a list of a, of a couple painters, and I'm curious if, if, if in this time or, or before this time they were painters that interested you. And the first painter about whom I'm going to ask you is one that art historians have quite often associated with your work, and I'm honestly not quite sure I see it, and that's Barnett Newman. I really like Barnett Newman's work, and I thought there was a lot more than just what you were visually looking at. There was a lot of meaning in those stripes and the colors he selected. Dan and I visited his studio oh, several times, more than three times, and he was always like very like he 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 would let us in and look to look at the work, but he really didn't converse with us. It was like, oh, you guys again, you know, or something like that. <laughs> and his wife was always there beside him, like to make sure that everything went okay. And he was always sitting down. He never got up. It, it was strange, but I would look at the paintings. And the thing that always got to me was when I'd see photographs of his painting, sometimes they would show photographs of the studio, and the studio always looked fantastic. You know, this is great. But when we went to the studio, it was a whole different room. It was things were thrown all over the place and everything. And I said, "Wow, this doesn't look at all like the same place that they photographed." I mean, maybe it was a different, I don't know, a different location or something. But that's what really struck me. But he always had at least two paintings on the wall that he was working on. I admired him and I admired the work. The Dan you mentioned is, of course, Daniel LaRue Johnson. So when I was doing my reading to prepare to talk to you, I found a couple of interviews in which you talked about enjoying cross-country drives and how that informed your sense of your interest in space. And of course, still talked about the same thing. Still had a big Lincoln Mark V. He liked to drive coast to coast. His daughters, I believe, after Still's passing, have talked about how Still loved driving through the canyon country of the southwestern United States and how they they didn't, I guess, actually, they haven't actually, I guess, said it this way, but their suggestion that was some of those scything lines in Still's work may be related to the way canyons scythe across the southwestern U.S. Was what attracted you to Still's work that sense of space, or was it the way he could use a little bit of color, bright color, in a field of a different color and make it seem like the most important thing in the world? Or <laughs> No, no, exactly. And I also liked the way he handled his materials. I liked what he did to the surface. It was abstract, but at the same time, very organic. And I think that those cross-country drives really had a lot to do with informing his work. Because to me, they kind of looked like the sides, the sides, you, you know, as you're driving along and, and maybe a highway was created in on the side of a mountain and you'll see all these stratas. It, it looked like that. And I think that informed his work a lot. I mean, the colors were obviously different, but that kind of, I, I don't know, very tactile feeling, uh, the surface, and yet against a smooth surface. It was really beautiful, beautiful stuff. Like a, pa- like a painting of yours, Stonehenge from 1964, <laughs> which, which has smooth and, I mean, right? <laughs> smooth and, and very 
textured surfaces right next to it and how they're running down. They seem to run down, but they don't. It's really, you know, very purposeful the way he puts the color in. Beautiful stuff. He came to New York. I mean, he went to New York for a while. He left. He said all the artists, all the artists were prostitutes. Well, speaking of, of finding value in the surfaces of Still's paintings, Still, of course, mixed his own paints. So they, they were, in a sense, organic in the modern sense of the word. I mean, they were self-made. Was a painting of yours like Terra Mancha from 1964, which, which recalls the surface of the earth, is that an example of finding something in, in, in Still's surfaces of which you could make use? Unfortunately, not. No, I was still trying to get back to my childhood experiences uh, on my grandparents' turkey farm, ranch, the earth that I would see as I was riding the bike. That really stayed with me a lot. And that's where all those uh, themes and like terra mancha, like the stained earth is really what that means. That's what I was getting at because the earth was red. And that really, I couldn't get over that. How could earth, well, to me it was dirt. How could dirt be red? As a kid, I would ask myself that. And it was that that's really, you know, what really stayed with me. Returning to the, the, the chronology a bit, after the curvilinears, you made some paintings in which all of the lines straightened out. Where, where the lines became less loud, less less calling attention to themselves. They're untitled paintings, which is why I'm, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard in audio just to say, well, and entitled. But why did, what what made the lines change? What made them flatten and straighten out? Which body of work are you speaking of? So there's some untitled works from like 73 and 74. Blue Space is one with a title. There's there's a, a painting that Hales has from 73 that features a diagonal line that quite pointedly doesn't bisect the canvas. But all, you know, it, it seems anyway, like all of a sudden the the curving lines get very point to point. Yes. Again, it has to do with space my involvement in space. And the thing is that I had a need to move forward and to see where that concept would take me. And so the line became, in a sense, less important, but the space became more dominant. I just, I followed, you know, I followed the instinct. Since I didn't have a gallery at the time to tell me, oh, Virginia, you change your style. Wait, wait, what's going on? I just, I was free to do whatever I felt like doing. And that's what uh, came about. Eventually, even with the stained paintings, everything just kind of melted away. The whole composition just became in flux. That's, that's an awesome phrase, melted away, because melted away. Were you interested in how stain painters like Morris Lewis were kind of melting color down the canvas? Were you melting away the, the, hard, the hard monochromatic color of the backgrounds of the curvilinears? I'm curious more about melted away because one kind of sees it happening over the course of the 1970s. I became concerned with melting away the division between the line and the background. So the line, in a sense, 
began to disappear. And the way I approached it was just letting everything just flow, just melt away, just, uh, and then, uh, you know, manipulating the stretcher and the canvas in the direction I wanted it to go. But again, still involved with space, because at that time, space really became important, more important than the line. And so by the visual theorems of like 79, 80-ish, has background and foreground and line and background all kind of melted into a hovery one? Is that what was going on there? Well, the visual theorems are handmade paper from linen fibers. And again, everything had to be composed in water. So again, it was like a melting away and maintaining... They were handmade papers that had to be, you know, submerged into a vat, but yet it had to be composed. And so it was layer upon layer, but still my, I attempted to keep it as thin as possible in the areas that I wanted to compose. So you, you see a lot of composition in those in those pieces. But yet it's all achieved because of the linen fiber, which the fiber of the linen is longer than cotton. And so it allows for, if you really play it right, it allows for a transparency while maintaining the integrity of the sheet of paper. I wanted to find out if I could do that. And it was it all came about by looking at watermark on a sheet of paper. So what is the idea or process that separates visual theorems from foundations? Foundations was, the foundation series came after visual theorems, of course. Foundations was based more on structure, like literal things, like the structure of the side of a building or structure of a steel beam coupled with something else. It was more structural (laughs) rather than compositional I was dealing now I didn't care so much about the composition I wanted to put a form in there which like was a foundation piece like a foundation a brick a foundation of a a concrete and metal meeting one another but all you could see was the outline of them of of these two objects meeting so that's where the foundations came from foundations 152-a from 1982 is one that is both representative, I think, of what you're describing, but also has within it, you're probably going to hang up on me after I say this, a sense of illusionistic space, almost as if we're looking through a window pane, that there's depth within the picture plane. Oh, good, phew. I'm, I thought I was going to get in big trouble. No, I agree. I was striving for something, if I could get close to what you've just stated, that would be successful for me in that piece. Because it's very hard to control that since everything is floating in water. It's very, very difficult. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing. We will have an image of it on manpodcast.com. You you just explained why the foundations works were called foundations. I should have asked why were the visual theorems works called visual theorems? Well, I had a statement written about visual theorems, and it was uh, what we as human beings uh, 
think we're looking at, but not really looking at the truth. And uh, it's how we superimpose our experiences on what's before us. Sometimes it's the truth and sometimes it isn't. And uh, whole cultures have been wiped out because of that. They see one thing happening, but don't believe that it could happen. The whole premise of that was a statement that I had written about the Aztecs when the Spaniards came. They thought, you know, they had a a myth about a long-lost brother that had left them. And when they saw the Spanish, they thought that was the return of their long-lost brother. And uh, little did they know that that was really the end of their civilization. You know, uh, we, we, we haven't talked about Mexico much, by which I'm saying I haven't asked about Mexico much. Have there been periods in the work where Mexico and the experience of space or culture, Teotihuacan, for example, has been more important than at other times, or has it always been there? Teotihuacan is really, for me, a mysterious place. In fact, I did a series of handmade paperworks dealing with that, like looking at the site from above, just like the floor plan <laughs> or the ruins left, you know, the the delineation of, of a structure or what have you. Yeah, I, it's really a beautiful place, and the mythology surrounding it really has always intrigued me. So, yes, in terms of that, Teotihuacan is very important. You mentioned a moment ago not having a dealer in, in, in the 1970s and how that left you free to do what you want without a dealer telling you to do other things that would sell differently. Is that the most important way bigotries within the art world impacted your career in those way those years, or were there or were there other bigger issues and problems? Well, in New York, it was more hidden, but there was always a problem of being a woman artist, thanks to a dealer, Douglas Drake, who came along eventually, and he saw, I guess, a value in my work. Uh, he took me on, as, as as well as other women artists. He was one of the few dealers that it didn't matter if you were a woman or what what have you. He he took you on the you know, on the on the value of what your work was about. But yes, you know, like you could hang around with with uh, with male artists and everything like this, but you were more or less considered a groupie because you weren't part of you know their gallery or. You know, you weren't known by collectors or anything like this. So you were just kind of like a stand-in. You were there. But you were, in a sense, meaningless. Did having children in New York in those years create its or their own set of issues? I mean, did that make it harder to network? Or did it make the men who ran the art world less willing and having you around to network? Well, the the thing was that I never spoke about my private life. I always kept, I considered art the business, that's how I looked at it, and my personal life separate. Uh, Doug, Douglas Drake didn't even realize I was married till several years later I mentioned my husband. He said, you're married? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, you never spoke to me about your husband. And I said, no, I keep that totally separate. My personal life is my personal life. And uh, the fact, Daniel and I, whenever 
someone came by to look at our work, his work or my work, the other, my, myself or, or he, would take the kids out. And so it was just the individual and the collector. Uh, never, uh, there were never, our kids were never around. Because I didn't want to, and neither did Dan, we didn't want to confuse anyone because someone told me years ago, I mean, when we first moved to New York, don't make the mistake of, you know, women always do this. Oh, and these are my children. Oh, at least in the past. Oh, yes. Wait, Timmy. <laughs> you have to go with your nanny now or something like this. And it kind of takes the seriousness out of the visit. When people came to see my work, I wanted them to be involved with my work and myself, not anything around me. Starting around 1990, your titles include the word site, S-I-T-E, and as the years would go on, sometimes geographic coordinates will come into the titles of, of the work. So, for example, there's a work called Site Number 12, and the rest of the title is the longitude Longitudinal and latitudinal coordinates. I'm not a geographer. I'm sure I'm getting this wrong. But anyway, when you when you plug the coordinates into into a map, one gets a place such as Delphi in Greece. This is all a long way of asking. <laughs> what made site and specific sites important enough that you wanted to refer to them in titles? Well, the thing is, I've always been involved with ancient civilizations, and I was reading Gilgamesh for like the fifth time. And it really, in fact, uh, there's a phrase from Gilgamesh which is in the catalog of that show. Anyway, I was concerned with the fact, you know, this is the planet. And I'm, I'm involved with anything that goes on on the planet that I haven't happened to inhabit, you know. And ancient civilizations, to me, really, I, I, I read a lot about that and... The only thing that's left from these civilizations are the foundations of the structures that once stood. And so my concern was, okay, I'm not going to name these sites. I'm going to do it in an archaeological way. Site 15, 30 degrees, 5 point whatever north. So, you, you know, I just did the, but but they're, they're correct coordinates. If you on any of the paintings, if you log that into Google Map, the site will come up. And that's what I wanted the viewer or the collector or whoever was, you know, involved with the piece to, you know, to take the time to log that in and see what that was. Because the painting is is rather in an abstract way indicative of the site. You know, like uh, there's a site for Japan, an underwater monument and the painting kind of connotes kind of has a japanese feeling to it and uh there's a painting on chaco canyon which is dealing with the colors of the southwest but totally in abstract way yeah the the abstractions are somehow both architectonic and hard edge with colors that once one does exactly what you just described typing the coordinates into Google Maps, a series of associations just kind of click into place like a, like a Tetris game clicks into, into place. So these paintings are a return to flat expanses of, 
you know, flat acreages of color, if you will. And so if we look at kind of a certain arc of your career, there were areas of flat color and texture in the 60s. The curvilinears come along and have this huge, booming monochromatic flat color. We get into the foundations and the visual theorems we were talking about, which are none of those things. They are subtle and depthy and layered, and then you're back to big, booming, and flat. Is there an accidental narrative in that? Is there an intentional narrative in that? I'm interested in this changing progression as the years go on and wonder if there's a larger story there. I don't really think about what I do. I just, well, there's a, obviously there's a thinking process about how am I going to translate this? Usually when I hear of a site or some kind of scientific theory, I immediately get a visual picture. This has been since I was a kid. And so I attempt to translate that into art or painting. You know, seeing all these sites that are just ruins now, it, it wasn't about how, how I was going to paint them. It was how could I give them the justice that they deserved. Civilizations, you know, that's the only thing, that's the only way that uh, archaeology really understands uh, how advanced a civilization is or how unadvanced it is and what it leaves behind. So that's what I was trying to get at, like trying to deal with these sites in an archaeological way. And I don't think it had anything to do with, uh, oh, am I going to you know, go back to this style of work. I just, I just went where the notion of the work led me. And and the constant across, you know, fifty or sixty years of work now is a an an, an unwavering commitment to abstraction. Yes, yeah, that is so true. That is so true. Even when you know, figurative painting was really in, especially in California, I saw things in an abstract way. Blame it on Charles Eames. <laughs> that is probably a, a good place to stop and for me to say thank you, Virginia Jaramillo, for, for speaking with me. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. It truly has. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.